Imagine a room awash in gasoline. And there are two implacable enemies in that room. One of them has 9,000 matches. The other has 7,000 matches. Each of them is concerned about who's ahead, who's stronger. Well, that's the kind of situation we are actually in. The amount of weapons that are available to the United States and the Soviet Union are so bloated, so grossly in excess of what's needed to dissuade the other, that if it weren't so tragic, it would be laughable. What is necessary is to reduce the matches and to clean up the gasoline. Dr. Carl Sagan had a distinct voice. You probably know it from his famous educational science program, Cosmos, A Personal Voyage, where 500 million viewers have listened to him talk about... 100 billion other galaxies, each of which contains something like 100 billion stars. Admittedly, we're a bit biased here. Dr. Sagan actually served on our board from 1980 until his untimely death in 1996. But that doesn't take away from his profound message. That clip where he compares the U.S.-Soviet nuclear arms race to a war in a room with matches and gasoline comes from a panel discussion that took place in 1983. It was moderated by Ted Koppel and featured some heavyweights of the era, like Dr. Sagan, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, Nobel laureate and Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel, and former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. The live panel took place just after ABC aired The Day After, a film set in the Midwestern United States in the immediate aftermath of a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. Even though it's more than 30 years old, The Day After is one harrowing film, to say the least. Sure, the visual effects aren't the most realistic to anyone used to modern movies, but there are numerous scenes that can still give you shivers. Like this one, where a military officer asks for confirmation that the nuclear war scenario is real and not a drill. Missile warning, this is Beale. Confidence is high. I repeat, confidence is high. Roger, we've got 32 targets in track and 10 impacting points. I want to confirm, is this an exercise? Roger, copy. This is not an exercise. Roger, understand. Major Reinhardt, we have a massive attack against the U.S. at this time. ICBMs. Around 100 million people in 39 million households watched the movie during its initial showing. And the context of its release cannot be ignored. At the time, President Reagan had announced a major nuclear overhaul that included new strategic bombers, a new fleet of intercontinental ballistic missiles with 10 warheads each, and intermediate-range missiles deployed in Europe. This was also on the heels of President Reagan's speech announcing the Strategic Defense Initiative, an ambitious, colossally expensive, and likely technologically impossible missile defense plan that critics labeled Star Wars. In his own words, President Reagan's plan was to create missile defenses to give us the means of rendering these nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete. But at the same time, his plans also upset the so-called strategic balance, where both the U.S. and the Soviet Union were equally vulnerable, which, in theory, meant that no one side would preemptively attack the other. Predictively, the Soviet Union reacted very negatively to these plans, continuing its own massive nuclear buildup. It was an extremely dangerous arms race, 
one that spawned a movement of millions of activists who demanded that each country freeze their nuclear development and sensibly negotiate nuclear reductions. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation in Washington, D.C. I'm James McKeon, a policy analyst here at the Center. We'll have more on the day after and the nuclear freeze movement in a few minutes. But first, we wanted to talk about some more recent news. Bernadette Stadler, a visiting Herbert Scoville Jr. Peace Fellow here at the Center, recently interviewed a Washington Post reporter about his book on nuclear weapons. Bernadette, can you tell us some more information? Absolutely. The book Almighty, Courage, Resistance, and Existential Peril in the Nuclear Age follows three activists as they break into the heavily guarded Y-12 nuclear security site in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, to protest nuclear weapons, and then as they stand trial for intending to endanger the national defense. The book grapples with many of the practical and moral questions of the nuclear age through the personal stories of these and other individuals whose lives have been affected by nuclear weapons. I spoke with the author of Almighty, Washington Post reporter Dan Zak, about some interesting aspects of the book and what he learned while researching and writing it. Dan, thanks so much for being with us. To start off, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about why you decided to write the book Almighty. Sure. You know, I'm a general assignment reporter for the Post, which means at no point have I covered energy or security or the military as a beat. So this kind of uh, this topic kind of came to me sideways by happenstance. A colleague of mine who was covering national security in 2012 was working on a couple pieces about how the U.S. arsenal, nuclear arsenal, was aging, and she had, as part of her reporting, had been visiting the Y-12 national security complex uh, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And while she was doing that reporting, these three peace activists in July of 2012 broke into the facility as a, as a kind of intrepid form of civil resistance against the mere possession of nuclear weapons. And it didn't really fit with my colleague's reporting, but she thought someone should write about it. And because I'm a general assignment feature writer, it found its way to me. And I was initially interested simply because an 82-year-old Catholic nun was involved. I went to 12 years of Catholic school, and so I was quite tickled by the fact that this woman broke very serious laws. And so that and that was it. Um, it wasn't because I had an interest in nuclear weapons. It's because this event happened and it captured my imagination and it led me to inquire within the topic of nuclear weapons. So what was the most interesting or surprising thing you found when you started researching this book? Well, I mean, I, there's a million smaller interesting things. I mean, the biggest one, it's very kind of high altitude in general, but I just was, I had no idea the U.S. has spent so much money over 70 plus years and also so much human capital too. The amount of money and the amount of manpower intellect and livelihood that went into developing the bomb originally, but then to maintain and build up the arsenal uh, over the years, and then of course to start to dismantle it a bit over the past 20 or 30 years. I, I just, the, the scale of the Manhattan Project and the scale of the work, the design, the production, the maintenance, the testing, dismantlement in some cases, the money and the manpower that was devoted to it, I just had no idea of, of it, what it took, you know, in the early days during World War II and, and since. And the amount of people who contributed, the amount of people who suffered as a result, and just the amount of, of, of money, both money that was used wisely and money that was wasted. I just, the enormity of it was, was shocking to me. 
I kind of want to jump onto that point that you made about human suffering. I think everyone is aware that when a nuclear bomb is detonated in war, a lot of human suffering results. But in the book, you also talked about the suffering involved with the creation of uranium and plutonium for nuclear weapons, and also about U.S. nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands and what it did to those who live there. I'm wondering why you chose to highlight these stories. I think what's been missing is there hasn't been an above-ground test of a nuclear weapon since, what, 1963? That means there hasn't been a mushroom cloud on the planet since then, and, and obviously not a combat use of a weapon since 1945. Um, so I think these weapons have kind of receded in the imagination and the comprehension of people, particularly people like myself. I'm 33 years old, and I, you know I have no memory of the Reagan years or the Cold War. I came of age after that. Um, and so I, I think it was useful to remember what happens when one explodes and what happened during many decades of testing. The reason that I brought the Marshall Islands into it was, which I'd, I'd never heard of the Marshall Islands before looking into this topic, but the Marshall Islands were suing the United States around the same time that these three activists I was writing about were kind of trying to use their day in court to indict the United States for similar reasons. It was all about non-compliance with the non-proliferation treaty. And so I saw these three American activists and this small island nation in the Pacific kind of trying to do the same thing. And so that's why I brought the Marshall Islands into the story. One theme of the book is how religious the activists were. When I was reading, I was thinking about the title of the book, Almighty, and why you may have chosen that title. One of my theories is that Almighty is referring to religious faith, but also also faith in nuclear weapons and the faith in the security of our nuclear compounds. I was wondering if you also saw similarities in these different kinds of faith. Yeah, that's exactly it. Nuclear weapons are a faith. They are the faith that they keep the relative global peace and have for generations. And I think they're talked about with a religious devotion, especially in Washington. I mean, I mentioned in the book you know, you could go to one or two or more nuclear-related panels or sessions in Washington every day if you wanted to, with varying kind of political perspectives. But they're talked about, especially at an official level, as kind of the ultimate guarantor of American security, of world stability. And there are plenty of people who think that that is not correct. It's a notion that is predicated on faith. I think they look at nuclear weapons with the same single-mindedness that the, these activists look at nuclear weapons. It's an ultimate faith that either we need these things or we need to get rid of them. So, yeah, I mean, the, the title Almighty was was kind of, in one word, encapsulated both the, the power of the weapons, but also the overlap in faith between these radical religious activists and the kind of conservative nuclear priesthood. I mean, you know, you, you go and you know this. I mean, you go into the jargon of nuclear weapons. There's a lot of religious overtones, starting from the first test of them, Trinity, and going through to kind of this shorthand of nuclear priesthood. And I think that's because everyone, regardless of their background or political belief or religiosity, recognizes that these weapons are godlike, small g, godlike, mm-hmm. uh, or big g. But in in a sense, they are they are ultimate. And so I thought, and and I and I picked Almighty from a a quote from the deputy of the Manhattan Project who witnessed Trinity and said. Well, now mankind heretofore has powers reserved for the Almighty. I mean, it was the first time in human history where we had achieved through our own intellect something that could end us instantly. You know, Carl Sagan said up until that point, 
human intellect had served the survival of mankind. You know, we developed refrigeration and locomotion and all these ways to kind of aid survival. And now we've crossed this threshold into something that could end the human race. So my last question for you is about how to get more young people interested in nuclear weapons. In the book, it was very striking that all of the people profiled were of the same generation, baby boomer or older. What do you think should be done to get more people interested in this topic? You know, I think any generation has enough brain space to grapple with one existential crisis at a time. And I think people my age and younger have been focused on environment and climate and climate change. And I was raised not in a duck and cover sensibility, but in a reduce, reuse, recycle sensibility, you know, and that was that was kind of my generation's thing. But I think that there is, there's a way, I don't know how to do it, but there's a way to fuse the climate crisis, which is slow and ongoing um, and incremental with a potential nuclear crisis, which is always there, but would happen very suddenly. Um, and the trick is to be able to talk about both of these extremely large and complicated existential crises in the same breath without turning people off or making people feel like it's futile to even think about it. On June 12, 1982, nearly one million people protested in New York City as part of the nuclear freeze movement. Polls at the time showed support for the freeze at above 70%. President Reagan, however, was undeterred, until he saw the day after. After seeing an advanced screening of the film, President Reagan wrote in his diary, quote, It's very effective, and left me greatly depressed. So far they haven't sold any of the 25 spot ads scheduled, and I can see why. My own reaction was one of our having to do all we can to have a deterrent and to see that there is never a nuclear war. During a major speech just two months later, the president declared, quote, My dream is to see the day when nuclear weapons will be banished from the face of the earth. And then, in his 1984 State of the Union address, he said this, A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. In 1986, President Reagan met with Soviet Premier Gorbachev in Iceland to discuss the potential elimination of nuclear weapons altogether. The talks went well, but they collapsed in the end due to President Reagan's insistence on the continued research and development of missile defenses. However, in part because of the talks, the United States and Soviet Union signed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF Treaty the first arms control agreement that eliminated an entire class of nuclear weaponry. After the treaty was signed in 1987, President Reagan reportedly wrote to the director of the day after with this message, quote, don't think your movie didn't have any part of this, because it did. Unfortunately, today the INF treaty is in serious jeopardy, a topic we will discuss thoroughly in a later podcast. But here's the lesson in all of this. People, including young people, really used to care about nuclear weapons. And that led to change. As we talked about with Dan Zak, those who grew up after the Cold War are mostly unaware of the dangers of nuclear proliferation, even though the threat never went away. In Carl Sagan's scenario, the gasoline-filled room still exists, just with fewer matches. At the center, we work every single day to educate policymakers about nuclear threats. 
One of our key goals is to help educate the public too, and that includes young people. We don't have all the answers, no one does, but we're hoping with your help, together we can help to reduce the threat of nuclear weapons, not only for ourselves, but also for future generations. A quick note before we go. As we mentioned, Bernadette, who interviewed Dan Zak about his book, Almighty, is a Herbert Scoble Jr. Peace Fellow, and we've been really fortunate to have her on board our team. The Scoble Fellowship offers six to nine month placements for recent graduates interested in nuclear and broader national security policy. The fellowship is partnered with about two dozen organizations here in DC. Two of our analysts, including me, were Scoble Fellows in the past. We can't recommend it enough. For anyone interested, please visit www.scoville.org. If you enjoyed this episode of Nukes of Hazard, please share it with your friends and family. And if you have any questions or comments, you can shoot us an email at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. Our Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash armscontrolcenter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.